Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and along the way trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues as well as to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Thank you very much for tuning in to listen to this podcast, or if you happen to be listening to the live stream on AmericasWebRadio.com, and that would be first aired Wednesday, September 16th, 2015 at 7 p.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Otherwise, if you're playing back the podcast, appreciate very much your choosing to tune in. Uh, also, always trying to keep the information current and relevant as far as those of you interested in any sort of mental health issues. Now, <clears throat> there is a serious shortage of mental health professionals in general, and especially of psychiatrists. And these past couple of years, as we've had very unfortunate, serious killings take place, and many times, if not most of the times, there have been implications of mental health issues on the part of the perpetrators, uh, it always gets talked about, well, we need better mental health care in this country, and um, especially if people talk about restricting access to the weapons that are used in these crimes, typically guns, um, that side says, no, it's not the guns, it's the mentally ill, we need to make sure mental illness is properly treated. Well, I couldn't possibly agree more. There is more of a need for treatment to be available to the mentally ill, and um, but there being a shortage of psychiatrists, that's nothing new. I mean, it's been that way for the past 30, probably 40 years or so. Um, So this is nothing new. So when I saw this article, it's like, well, okay, I've known about this my entire career and since I even first thought about becoming a psychiatrist. So let's see what people are saying about this issue now. It is an irony that troubles healthcare providers and policymakers nationwide. Even as public awareness of mental illness increases, a shortage of psychiatrists worsens. In vast swaths of America, patients face lengthy drives to reach the nearest psychiatrist if they can even find one willing to see them. Some states are promoting wider use of long-distance telepsychiatry to fill the gaps in care. Telepsychiatry is when you have a psychiatrist with uh, a webcam or separate monitor 
on when ending, uh, some non-MD professionals have the patients come to their appointment at a clinic on the other end, also with a camera or monitor, so that the doctor and patient can communicate remotely. Now, in Texas, which faces a very severe shortage of psychiatrists, lawmakers recently voted to pay the student loans of psychiatrists willing to work in underserved areas. A bill in Congress would forgive student loans for child psychiatrists. Even with such efforts, problems are likely to persist. A recent survey by the American Medical Colleges found that 59% of psychiatrists are 55 or older, guilty, the fourth oldest of 41 medical specialties, signaling that many soon will be retiring or reducing their workload. And that's going to obviously exacerbate this shortage, not just make it persist. Now, according to the American Medical Association, the total number of physicians in the United States increased by 45% from 1995 to 2013, while the number of adult and child psychiatrists rose by only 12%. That's less than a third uh, comparing the different percentages. Uh, The number of child and adult psychiatrists went in 1995 43,640 to 49,079 in 2013. During that span, the United States population increased by about 37%. Meanwhile, millions more Americans have become eligible for mental health coverage under the Affordable Care Act. Federal health authorities have designated about 4,000 areas in the United States as having a shortage of mental health professionals, areas with more than 30,000 people per psychiatrist. That's just unacceptable. What's behind the shortage of psychiatrists? This is the part of the article I was most interested in. wanted to see if the reasons had changed at all since I first entered the profession. Dr. Renee Binder, president of the American Psychiatric Association, says the perception of inadequate pay is a factor in discouraging some medical students from choosing psychiatry as a specialty. The latest federal data shows a mean annual wage of $182,700 for psychiatrists slightly below the mean for general practitioners and 28% below that for surgeons. Now I know what a lot of you must be thinking, wow, almost $183,000 on average? Uh, I'd love to be able to make that much. What's wrong with that? Well, you know, that obviously is uh, an excellent, excellent living, but on the other hand, Uh, It's quite low compared to many other medical specialties. And when you consider the just horrific student loan balances that a medical student will graduate with, they're going to look to a specialty 
that will be more lucrative than that. That's just the reality of how it is. Now, some psychiatrists are switching to a cash-only practice out of frustration with what they view as inadequate reimbursement from government and private health plans. The, that I agree with that. That is true. Um, I'm not a Medicaid provider, but so I can't speak to how that reimburses. I don't imagine it's very good. But as far as the other big government health plan, not big government, but government health plan that is big, that would be Medicare, and uh, that actually reimburses quite well. Um, and they more or less, Medicare uh, more or less sets the tone for the private commercial insurance carriers. Um, they pretty much follow in lockstep closely uh, around what Medicare pays us. Um, now, <clears throat> another problem is the paperwork requirements imposed by Medicare and private insurance companies. Uh, this interferes with doctors' ability to have the time to just sit with their patients. And so the thinking is to there's a need to decrease the administrative burden and increase the compensation. I would have to say, though, that uh, whereas in the past it used to be fairly unique to psychiatry that there was overly burdensome paperwork from having to document the justification for the visits to uh, documenting ongoing treatment plans and so on. Uh, most of that has really fallen off and stopped. Um, it's now the exception that we have to go through all that extra paperwork requirement. Uh, the biggest burden I think there is in psychiatry, but this is any medical specialty, not just psychiatry, is having to do separate extra authorizations for prescriptions when the insurance company decides they don't want to pay for a medication that the psychiatrist prescribes. Um, to me, that's the most burdensome administrative part, not so much paperwork for the insurance companies, for the claims, for the visits, um, and that would include Medicare. Again, I can't speak to Medicaid since I don't work with that. Um, now, <clears throat> Among today's medical students, there is excitement about the scientific developments in psychiatry, but again, still concern about the profession's stature. Uh, it is not looked at as prestigiously at others, as other specialties are, and again, the pay levels. Also, there remain issues of stigma around mental disorders. The people who suffer most from that stigma are the patients, but there are still cases where psychiatry is devalued by others in the medical profession. Looking forward, mental health experts identify two primary avenues for addressing the shortage. One is to expand the use of psychiatric telemedicine, enabling psychiatrists to serve more patients in expanded regions, including individuals with limited mobility, such as elderly people and prison inmates. Several states, including South Carolina, North Carolina, and Michigan, have implemented extensive telepsychiatry programs. 
there's some wariness about foregoing face-to-face -face interaction with patients to just do it uh, remotely by a screen. But the leading psychiatric organizations believe the benefits of expanding telepsychiatry, increasing access to care, far outweigh any negatives. Well, it's time to take our first commercial break. When we come back, we'll finish this discussion about the psychiatry shortage, and I have some, some of my own thoughts about hesitations about telepsychiatry. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about the serious shortage of psychiatrists that exists in the United States. One of the proposed solutions is greater use of telepsychiatry, uh, telemedicine, of course, meeting remotely with patients via uh, closed-circuit television or webcam or other such device. Now, even though this would tremendously improve access to care and make up for the terrible shortage of psychiatric specialists, Malpractice insurance companies sure don't like this. If you are a psychiatrist, uh, your malpractice insurance carrier wants to know if you do telepsychiatry. Because if you do, they consider that an added risk. And there's going to be uh, an extra rider on your policy, um, if, and you may have to pay higher premiums. Or if you're very unlucky, they will 
not cover you for doing that work. And, you know, this certainly seems to be something that would interfere with needed care and um, very counterproductive. But I suppose if you are a actuary and looking at things that may go wrong and generate claims as far as malpractice is concerned, uh, then from their point of view, the lack of the face-to-face -face interaction in the same room uh, renders uh, the interaction less accurate um, and uh, less of a direct doctor-patient relationship and therefore more fraught with things going wrong, including uh, negligence, which could lead to malpractice. Um, I have to say I don't agree with that, and I think that some, some sort of reforms need to be proposed. Uh, so I would hope that the legislators who are trying to pass laws that will promote greater access to psychiatry, such as uh, forgiving medical students' loans if they choose to go into psychiatry and practice in a shortage area, that that would also extend to some reforms in the malpractice insurance in industry in terms of not penalizing psychiatrists or other specialists for that matter who wish to practice uh, telemedicine in general, telepsychiatry in particular. Now another proposed strategy to address the shortage of psychiatrists is known as collaborative care in which mental health specialists provide consultation to other health care providers. Related to this are ongoing efforts to ensure that primary care physicians have solid training in mental health so they can handle some straightforward cases themselves and make proper referrals for more complex cases. Well, that's the key right there. If this model is going to work, then they have to have the training and expertise to be able to handle the fairly simple, straightforward, not complex cases. And that's unfortunately presuming a lot. No offense to some of my primary care colleagues. And then, okay, so let's say they successfully identify a more complex case that they can't or should not try to handle and uh, want to refer that patient to a psychiatric specialist. Well, again, they're going to run into the same problem that there will be too few psychiatrists to handle the extra load. Collaborative care may have some promise provided that the non-psychiatrists, whether doctors, nurse practitioners, counselors, or social workers, receive specialized training. The general principle is to enable them to practice to the ceiling of their expertise. In contrast to these calls for collaboration, there is continuing friction over whether America's psychologists, if properly trained, should have the same authority as psychiatrists to prescribe psychiatric medication. Three states, New Mexico, Louisiana, and Illinois, have granted this authority to qualified psychologists. 
But fierce opposition from psychiatric groups has blocked such moves in other states. Now, let me explain this for some of you who may not be familiar with it. Illinois, Louisiana, and New Mexico have actually made it legal for psychologists to prescribe psychiatric drugs to patients. These are people who do not have a medical degree. They have not gone to medical school. They are not MDs. Uh, they have advanced doctoral degrees, uh, so they are a Ph.D. doctor, not an M.D. doctor, and uh, they're prescribing medicine just like someone who went through four years of medical school by taking, you know, a class for several months or at most a year, if that. Uh, now, I make no bones about the fact that I'm a psychiatrist, so of course I'm going to be biased about this. Uh, I'm not you know, trying to hide that. Uh, but again, in my opinion, if you're letting basically a lay person in terms of no medical training or background prescribe psychiatric drugs merely because they've had several months of training and because they're certainly familiar with the symptoms and the diagnoses of mental illness, I think this is dangerous, wrongheaded. I do not think this is a good way to solve the mental health shortage. Uh, I think that a um, better situation would be to utilize the skills of psychologists in terms of identifying patients who are in great need and uh, contacting psychiatrists to see these patients, maybe through telepsychiatry or other means. Um, <clears throat> now, medications for psychiatric illness are very powerful like medications for any other illness. And people can die from them if they have side effects or complications or there are adverse interactions with other prescription or over-the-counter medications that they're taking. Uh, you definitely need a medical background to prescribe them effectively. Psychologist Daniel Abrahamson, who heads the American Psychological Association's State Advocacy Office, says such fears are not based on the facts, and he cites the lack of problems in the three states that eased restrictions. He said the psychologists who would obtain prescription authority have extensive training in assessing and treating mental illness, and that's true, and that they would help address the unmet needs for psychiatric medication. He says it would behoove everybody to work together Unfortunately, the old issues keep getting in the way and people try to protect their turf. Uh, sorry, but I think letting someone who's not trained as a physician prescribe medication is, a, is not a good idea. And I think claiming so is not just a question of a turf battle. Now, geographically, the distribution of psychiatrists across the United States is very uneven. According to AMN Healthcare, a healthcare staffing company, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Vermont, Connecticut, and New York have more than 15 psychiatrists per 100,000 people, while Wyoming, Texas, Iowa, Mississippi, Indiana, Nevada, and Idaho have fewer than six. In Texas, about 200 of the 254 
counties are designated as lacking enough psychiatrists. The Department of Veterans Affairs is among many health providers struggling with a psychiatrist shortage. Last year, the Associated Press chronicled the story of Nick D'Amico, a troubled Army veteran in Texas who had difficulty finding a VA psychiatrist who could adjust his medication. According to his mother, he was told there would be a six-month wait for a teleconference with a VA psychiatrist in New Mexico. The appointment was still two months away when D'Amico killed himself by driving off a cliff. Earlier this year, seeking to curb military suicides, Congress enacted a bill offering financial incentives to psychiatrists who agreed to work for the VA. Broader bipartisan bills have recently been introduced in each chamber of Congress seeking to address the psychiatrist shortage as part of an overall strengthening of mental health care. We simply don't have enough people who are professionally trained, said Representative Tim Murphy, a Pennsylvania Republican, who remains active as a psychologist and is lead sponsor of the House bill. His measure would, among other steps, help child psychiatrists pay off their student loans and promote wider use of telepsychiatry. Uh, why the extra attention to child psychiatrists, you may ask? Well, uh, they've always been in even worse shortage than psychiatrists in general. Uh, I mean, back when I was first entering the profession in the late 80s, uh, we were told that we should go into child psychiatry uh, because there was a tremendous shortage, and that still is the case to this day. Now, the workforce shortage, unfortunately, is here to stay, and it will necessitate having to do business differently. The way it is now, people with the right insurance who happen to knock on the right door at the right time will get seen, but they may not be the ones most in need. And I think that's true, but uh, again, I don't think having non-physicians prescribe medicine is uh, a solution that can only lead to um, dangerous outcomes. And uh, furthermore, the collaborative care is going to need a lot more work if that's going to prove beneficial. Hopefully, there'll be greater access to telepsychiatry without the uh, malpractice insurance companies um, interfering with access to it and making it uh, more expensive for psychiatrists to do it and therefore discouraging more psychiatrists to do it. I'm pretty convinced that if it were not uh, frowned upon by the malpractice companies and uh, we were allowed to do it without having to pay higher premiums or have an extra rider on our policy that more of us would do it, perhaps even myself. All right, well, that's going to bring us to another commercial break. We'll be right back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Now I'm going to spend some time talking about work-life balance and the importance of setting aside time for rest, relaxation, and leisure, recharging your batteries. Uh, <clears throat> If you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you know that occasionally uh, I'll pay attention to stress in the workplace issues, and uh, I do have a couple of articles related to that. But first, this article in a recent issue of the Atlanta Journal and Constitution caught my eye. The title of the article is is downtime necessary or just waste of time? And I thought to myself, really? We have to debate this? That's just incredible to me that people would just say, oh, downtime is not necessary. It's just a waste of time. Really? And then the subtitle is restorative time spent away from the grind has value experts say so I said wow I can't wait to hear what the experts have to say about this actually the article appeared in the Atlanta Journal Constitution but it comes from the Chicago Tribune and it says that there's a thin line between downtime and wasting time we're inundated with statistics and stories about how we're all overscheduled and underrested Busyness, described as both a virtue and an epidemic, inspires countless blog posts and a healthy number of books. Uh, busyness, B-U-S-Y hyphen N-E-S-S, just being too busy. 
always behind and always late with one more thing and one more thing and one more thing to do before rushing out the door. Washington Post reporter Bridget Schulte writes in Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. It's a 2014 book widely heralded as a must-read. Wow. Well, it's little wonder then that we crave and find ways to decompress, often through pursuits that don't add much to our lives. Clicking through your college boyfriend's vacation photos on Facebook, for example. Candy crushing your pals. But is that a good or a bad thing? Experts warn parents and educators against overscheduling children whose growing minds and bodies need downtime to develop in every realm, social, emotional, academic, and physical. But we don't spend as much energy defending unstructured time for adults. There's a stigma around downtime, said Shimi Kang, a Harvard-trained child and adult psychiatrist and author of The Self-Motivated Kid, How to Raise Happy, Healthy Children Who Know What They Want and Go After It Without Being Told. Hmm, rather a long book title, don't you think? Um, but she's saying that there's stigma around downtime. That's incredible. And she says, it sounds a little woo-woo, her words, not mine, to say you prioritize rest. People judge you as not very ambitious, not very competitive. In truth, Kang said, restorative downtime is critical for our mental and physical health. My reaction to that is, we need so-called mental health experts to tell us that? She goes on to say, breaks are moments of breakthroughs. Certain biological processes occur exclusively during moments of relaxed wakefulness when the brain's default mode network becomes activated. I couldn't agree more with that. Default mode is when it's just the background things are going on, uh, breathing, heart rate, uh, you're not particularly engaged in any task. Now, productivity, problem-solving, attention, creativity, and a moral compass are all strengthened and improved when our bodies have a chance to rest, she says. A time of relaxed wakefulness is when we integrate what we felt or heard. It's when we make sense of our past and apply it to our future, so our sense of ethics, our sense of self, even empathy are all shown to improve. Well, I agree with her there. Uh, again, it's just a shame that we need to have experts telling us that and publishing books about it. It should all be common sense. Now, all downtime apparently is not created equal, according to time use expert Laura Vanderkam, author of I Know How She Does It. How Successful Women Make the Most of Their Time. She says there's a big difference between consciously doing nothing versus actually wasting time. Wasting time is spending it on things that aren't particularly meaningful 
or even enjoyable to you. So, for example, surfing channels for an hour is wasting time. Watching an episode or two of your favorite show, on the other hand, is healthy downtime. Wow! So now we have to define what we do in our downtime as wasteful or not. She says you want to make sure downtime is doing what it's supposed to do, which is rejuvenate you, so you can return to your busy life more refreshed. Hard to argue with that. If it's not adding to your energy levels, you may want to stop doing it. That doesn't exactly mean you need to have to spend your downtime reading Tolstoy. <clears throat> Another expert says we've gotten this idea that we have to be productive every second, and that comes from Rachel Macy Stafford, author of Hands-Free Life: Nine Habits for Overcoming Distraction. Living better and loving more. As an aside, why is it that all these self-help type books have such unwieldy and long titles? I think if I ever write a book someday, I'm going to value brevity in the title. Anyway, she says we've run out of times and places where we can just let our mind wander, and she says she trained herself to build connective silences. Into her days, it's very interesting. I like that term. I like the concept. Connective silences. She says, "I give myself permission to be all there in certain moments. It might be sitting on the floor of my daughter's room while she's picking out her clothes, instead of scurrying around picking up her mess. I'm thinking about how the carpet feels, how my breathing sounds, looking at her face and taking in her freckles." It's almost a meditative experience. That does sound rather nice. And again, the idea of connective silences—I haven't read her book, and the article doesn't say—but to me, that evokes having just some quiet downtime in between the noisier, busier times of your day. That does sound、uh, like it should be restful and restorative, doesn't it? <clears throat> Now there should be more medical practitioners weighing in on the need for downtime.、Uh, I agree with that, but I say it's a shame that、uh, that has to be the case. We need an authoritative voice telling people to take breaks to slow down. Again, I agree with that. It's a shame it has to be that way.、Uh, <clears throat> uh, Kang says her patients often tell her they don't have time to build rest into their lives. Really? I don't have time to rest. That's pretty sad. Well, here's a ready answer.、Uh, Kang tells people, then you're too busy for optimal health. You're too busy to perform optimally. Too busy to be brilliant, to be the best athlete, to be the best CEO, writer, homemaker, whatever it is you're trying to achieve, because you need rest to do all of those things. Well, I couldn't agree more. And again,、uh, I hate to hammer away at this issue, but it's a shame that it's come to this—that our lives are so busy and hectic and overextended and overcommitted—that we have to have people writing books about the importance and benefits of downtime.、Um, <clears throat> but I couldn't agree more about the last point that 
unless you're taking some quality downtime at times, it's not going to allow you to be your best at whatever it is you're doing that you're spending too much time on at the expense of any free time. Um, if you let your brain rest and relax and recharge and take a break from whatever it is that you're working on so furiously, then what happens is all the things that you're thinking and working on kind of percolate on their own pretty much outside your awareness and the likelihood that you'll have some sort of eureka moment uh, that will help you move forward in whatever your endeavors are is much greater than if you're just go, go, go all the time, nonstop, no breaks. Well, this brings me to the next article I want to talk to you about, and this one is called, Why Working Long Hours Should Not Be the Norm. Um, So this one specifically is about the uh, lengthy work schedule. And uh, looking at this article, it brought to mind, uh, have you seen the latest TV commercial for the Hyundai SUV? It starts out by saying, since when did leaving work on time become an act of courage? And it shows a guy leaving his office at 6.01, mind you, not at 5.01, and everyone glaring at him uh, as he's leaving as if, what are you doing going home now? There's more work to do. Um, This definitely is a problem in this country. There is no respect for the boundaries of the workday. And even if you do physically leave the office, you're expected to stay in touch via text, email, voicemail, what have you. Uh, So work-life balance, again, has uh, fallen by the wayside. Now, earlier this month, Uniqlo announced a four-day work week for its full-time employees in Japan. Such a shift still seems like a pipe dream for plenty of Americans. But the research behind cutting down hours makes sense. Flexibility breeds productivity and health. And that's what is at the core of the discussion about flexible and uh, curved work hours uh, to promote flexibility, healthy workers, more involved and engaged, and loyal workers. All right, we'll continue this discussion after this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. 
So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. And we are continuing our discussion of work-life balance or the lack thereof, and uh, specifically how working long hours should not be the norm. Now, according to past studies, from the Finnish Institute of Occupational Health, as reported in the Harvard Business Review, overwork and the stress that comes with long hours can lead to impaired sleep, depression, heavy drinking, diabetes, and more. Recent research analyzing 600,000 individuals worldwide linked longer work hours to a higher risk of stroke. Now, all these uh, extra health concerns certainly make sense. If you're working very long hours, you're less likely to be able to take good care of your health. Health concerns aside, research has proven time and time again that fewer hours increases output, even as far back as the early 19th century. When unions pushed to limit workdays to 10 hours and subsequently 8 management found that productivity increased. This model was then adopted by Henry Ford, who doubled his workers' pay in 1914 and gave them eight-hour shifts instead of nine. In the October 2009 issue of the Harvard Business Review, Leslie Perlow and Jessica Porter documented an experiment in which they forced consultants to either take a full day off or stop working entirely after 6 p.m. They found that breaking the 24-7 work cycle created more engaged, efficient workers who were more open to experimentations. When people are always on, there is no impetus to explore whether the work actually requires 24-7 responsiveness. To the contrary, people just work harder and longer without considering how they could work better. Still, with the New York Times' recent takedown of Amazon's intense work culture, it's safe to say that plenty of companies aren't taking work-life balance seriously. As Dustin Moskowitz, co-founder of Asana and one of the co-founders of Facebook, reported recently Some companies specifically serve dinner in order to get workers to stay late. That is really insidious, if you ask me. And he says he also hears young developers 
frequently brag about 48-hour coding sprints. This kind of attitude not only hurts young workers who are willing to step up to the expectation, but facilitates ageism and sexism by indirectly discriminating against people who cannot maintain that kind of schedule. There will always be outliers for sure. The 1% to 3% of the population who can operate on five hours of sleep without seeing performance drop. But very few people are actually part of that elite superhuman group, and burnout is very real. As Moskowitz writes, with a better work-life balance, I believe I would have been more effective, a better leader, and a more focused employee. And the research is there to prove it. Now, last but not least, here's another article about workplace issues and stress-related issues in the workplace. And this one is about workplace rudeness, which spreads like a virus, according to a new study. Everyone worries about catching a cold at the office, but if you've got a mean co-worker, you might also be in danger of catching their rudeness, according to new research from the Journal of Applied Psychology. To reach their findings, researchers tracked 90 graduate business school students practicing negotiation techniques with classmates, with each person practicing with multiple partners over seven weeks. In the end, they found that those who rated their partner as rude were far more likely to be judged as rude themselves by a subsequent partner. They also found that people didn't seem to have any control over the spread. What they found in this study is that the contagious effect is based on an automatic cognitive mechanism. Automatic meaning it happens somewhere in the subconscious part of your brain so you don't know it's happening and can't do much to stop it. Anything from simple insults to ignoring a coworker to purposely disincluding someone or withholding information can create the toxic environment. This happens because experiences with rudeness leave a much bigger impression on us than you might think. When someone is rude to you, the experience creates a bias toward future experiences. For example, if your coworker made a snarky comment about how much you eat for lunch that you just can't let go, simply entering the kitchen where the snub occurred can make you more likely to be rude to someone else. Even just witnessing rude behavior directed at someone else seemed to have the same effect in further experiments included in the paper. Well, what can you do about this contagion of rudeness in the workplace? Chances are you've dealt with this issue. A whopping 98% of workers have experienced workplace rudeness, with 50% of people experiencing these behaviors at least weekly, according to the study. You can't do much about unconscious bias, but you can, of course, make an effort not to be rude in the first place. Another thing you can do is communicate as clearly as possible. 
Study results suggest that what is happening is that prior rudeness is biasing people's interpretation of future events toward rudeness. In order for a bias to have an effect, there must be ambiguity in the message. Messages that are completely clear won't be subject to bias. <clears throat> now here's a wonderful example to illustrate this otherwise esoteric sounding point. And uh, <clears throat> they use an example of a coworker saying, hey, nice shoes. Now, believe it or not, there's a number of ways that that comment can be interpreted. Was it a compliment or some kind of backhanded insult? Think about it. Could be taken different ways depending on the context and whatever else was going on between these two folks in the past. People who have been on the receiving end of rudeness will typically tend to interpret it as such. But if the person were to say something along the lines of, those shoes are beautiful, I really like that color with your dress, that makes it abundantly and unambiguously clear that the person really does like the shoes. So that's what they mean by clear communication that won't be subject to interpretive bias. Hope that makes sense. Now, this is also important because workplace rudeness not only spreads within the workplace, it also has been linked to more stress at home. So by helping to break the chain of hostile behavior, you can preserve your own well-being and perhaps your co-workers too. All right, well, good luck with that. If you have someone who's chronically rude to you in the workplace, it's hard to break the cycle and be nice yourself. Hopefully, at least the uh, awareness of how it spreads uh, will make it easier for you to be nicer yourself. This next article follows nicely in that it says happiness is contagious, depression is not. Happiness not only spreads, it could actually help prevent depression, according to a new study. Depression is not contagious, according to the new study, but happiness is more likely to spread between friends, and the results from the study may help remove some of the stigma surrounding depression. The World Health Organization estimates that 350 million people worldwide are currently living with depression. Preliminary studies have now shown that social support and friendships may be a major factor in lifting you out of a diagnosed funk. Thanks to a detailed study, we have some of the first empirical evidence that happiness is contagious and those and that those who befriend depressed people are not in danger of becoming depressed themselves. This is very positive. It could help reduce the stigma that depressed people feel. Researchers examined data from over 2,000 teenagers who had reported their network of friendships and answered questions about their levels of happiness as part of an earlier research project. Based on the survey results, the scientists classified each student into either a low mood or depressed category or a healthy mood or not depressed category. Then they mapped out friendships and ran computer simulations to determine whether happiness and sadness spread between friends like an infectious disease. 
It's actually fascinating to see how they applied the same models to this situation as they do with infectious diseases. This is what epidemiologists do. The result? Depression is not contagious. Meanwhile, happiness not only spreads, it may prevent and even help people recover from depression. The model suggests that teens with five or more happy friends have half the probability of suffering from depression over a six to 12 month period than teens with no healthy mood friends. And adolescents with 10 healthy friends have more than double the probability of recovering from depressive symptoms. It could be that having a stronger social network is an effective way to treat depression. Since the study suggests teen are not at risk of catching depression from their friends, and having happy friends may prevent or even pull teens out of depression, researchers stress that it is important to promote any friendship between adolescents. Friendship is a win-win, the study says. It can't hurt, but it may be both protective and curative. If we enable friendship to develop among adolescents, for example, providing youth clubs, each adolescent is more likely to have enough friends with healthy mood to have a protective effect. This would reduce the prevalence of depression. And I think this also makes a very good argument uh, for working hard to combat uh, bullying and peer abuse among adolescents. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it informative. And I hope that until we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.